the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot more information that we Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to We Get Real AF, everyone. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and comment on our show. I've really been looking forward to chatting with today's guest, Sue, because I'm a person that questions most things. I believe that outer space is way too big for us to be the only intelligent life in the many universes that exist. And I'm a forever 80s kid with a soft spot for AT in my heart. I know. I've always, since I was a little kid, loved looking up at the stars and just sort of wondering what's out there. And I think that's just a human thing, right? And I'm with you. I mean, our planet is so little in the vastness of outer space. There's got to be somebody else out there. So if you are out there and you're an alien, please like, subscribe, and listen to the We Get Real Life <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> but meanwhile, we're excited to introduce everybody today to our guest, Sarah Scholes. Here we go. We've all done it at least once, looked up at the incredibly vast sky full of stars, planets, and galaxies that make up our own universe, not to mention others, and wondered, are we alone? Are we the only intelligent life out there? Here today to pique our curiosity even more is Sarah Scholes, accomplished science journalist and published author who's dedicated her career to exploring the unknowns of extraterrestrial life, UFOs, and all things unearthly. Sarah, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right. Before we board this spaceship, how can our listeners connect with you online? They can find me uh, on Twitter at Skulls Sarah, S-C-O-L-E-S, Sarah with an H. Um, and then my website where I have all of my work is sarahskulls.com. So either place is great. Awesome. So Sarah, you write for several well-known publications like Wired, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and others about science and space-related topics. However, you have a new book entitled They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers, which we'd love to learn more about. So talk to us about the book and what sparked the idea for the project. Sure. Uh, I never really expected to be writing about UFOs because I come from more of the hard science side of astronomy and extraterrestrial life. But uh, a few years ago, maybe your audience remembers, the New York Times published this big story um, about a program that the Pentagon had run um, to do research on UFOs. And I just thought that uh, blew my mind a little bit um, to hear about an official program and to read in it in such an official publication. And I just got very curious and started to try to write a follow-up article about it. Um, and then as I was working on this follow-up article, I just talked to so many interesting people who had been researching UFOs or been in, embedded in the culture around UFOs for uh, you know longer than I'd been alive, and they weren't um, unhinged. They weren't just conspiracy theorists. They were very curious, dedicated, skeptical researchers, and a lot of them didn't even believe UFOs were aliens. And I just, you know, I get curious about what motivates people to do what they do. And so I just 
got curious about what motivated people to uh, learn about UFOs and how that had kind of gone throughout history. So each chapter in the book is kind of a different look at, at UFO culture, whether that's from the politics side or the religion side or the celebrity side or just um, hopefully a, a comprehensive view at UFOs in the modern world. So the fact that the government has um, a UFO research program sort of suggests that there's real thought behind the possibility that we're not alone. Like not like you said earlier, not crazy people necessarily, but actually really established thought behind that. So talk about that. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I guess first it's important to say that UFO itself as a term just means unidentified flying object. It doesn't necessarily mean alien pilots, although that would be very cool. And so from... <laughs> If you're the military, it makes a whole lot of sense that you would be very interested in finding out whether there's unidentified stuff flying over your borders, which um, people don't like. Um, and so um, that is definitely a, a true thing that, that the, the military and intelligence branches of the U.S. government have been concerned about actually since the uh, late 1940s, I believe. There have been programs kind of off and on to determine What's up there? Is it a threat? Can we learn something scientific from it? And so, but it had been a few decades since anyone had, since since anyone had known about a program like that. And so, it seemed to be kind of this resurgence of interest among the among the spooky types in the government to, to figure out what's going on, which has only increased um, since then. There there are more uh, official things going on right now. So they they don't take a stance on who's who's driving the ships, but they're interested. Do you feel that uh, social media has had any play in that just because we're getting information and videos from people, you know, all over the world at any given time that could potentially capture something that they cannot explain? So they're being a little more forthcoming about it? I think you could definitely say there is a a wealth of information about what people are seeing around the world and um, more ways to share it. Like if somebody in uh, Russia sees something they can't explain, they can put it on Twitter or whatever, just as well as I can. And um, I think for that reason, there, there kind of does also have to be more openness, not just among people like us, but also among governments because, um, you know, these, these things are, public. And I think information also spreads faster. Like maybe back in the day, if the New York Times published a story about UFOs, the people who subscribe to the New York Times in New York would see it. And now anyone can see it. And so it's a, it's kind of a ripe environment for that stuff getting out there. So what unidentified flying objects have subsequently been identified and what have they been identified as? Give us some ex interesting examples that you've researched and found. Sure. Well, I know that um, it is not super uncommon for pilots to accidentally try to intercept Venus. Like uh, Venus, the planet, actually looks very strange in the sky. It's kind of low on the horizon and it twinkles and wiggles in a, in a strange way. And um, so sometimes pilots will chase a planet that is far beyond um, our, our atmosphere. There's a, a famous case um, from a long time ago that uh, people at a um, at a school saw some kind of strange light and a bunch of them saw it there were lots of lots of witnesses and then the people running the government investigation program at the time actually determined it was um, 
flammable gas that comes out of swamps that kind of ignites into a ball of fire and, and can look like a UFO. Lots of people don't believe that explanation. Um, people mistake drones for UFOs or planes that are just coming straight towards you can look very strange, look like they're hovering. Um, the lanterns that people release with little candles in them that float up in the sky. I mean, pretty much anything. And actually, if you start just looking at the sky with an eye toward what do I see up there that I can't explain, you'll probably see something too. At what point in time did extraterrestrials, unearthly intelligent life, that culture pique your interest? And what encouraged you to like intertwine it with your career? Uh, I think I would have to say probably the day after I was born was the first day. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back at least as far as I can remember. I grew up very close to Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And so I was always watching shuttle launches like from my backyard. Um, And so space was just kind of a part of my my daily life. And uh, my mom has this picture that I drew when I was very young where I made up a fake solar system and... uh, just created aliens that would suit the environments of every fake planet that I made up. Um, and so it's probably a weird kid, but, um, <laughs> but it's just always kind of been a part of my life that I've wondered, are we alone? And if we're not alone, what are they like? But I would say it really, um, things really took off for me when I watched the movie Contact, which came out when I was about 12 years old. Um, which is about a scientist who kind of dedicates her entire career to looking for broadcasts from aliens and then finds one. And that was the first time I knew that that there was a job related to these big questions of, you know, what are we here for? Are, are we the only ones out here? Um, and so uh, skipping over a number of years after I became a, a writer and I wanted to write a book, um, I thought, you know what? do I like enough that I could spend that much time on it? And I went back to contact, which is actually based on the life of a a real scientist. And I thought, you know, no one's written a biography of of that woman. Her name is Jill Charter. Um, And that seems important for the, the, this pioneer of this field of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so my first book was actually a biography of, of Jill Charter and, then, you know, you become an alien writer and everything's just downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) But you're also a scientist. Uh, Talk to us about your science degree and, and, you know, that part of your expertise. Sure. I I only did an undergrad in science, but I I studied astrophysics, which was kind of where where I landed after I realized I wasn't going to be an astronaut myself. Um, I was just really, I was very fascinated with the fact that you could... um, with a telescope on Earth, learn about things going all the way back in time and space, almost to the Big Bang. Um, And also that you could use instruments to detect invisible things, like you can use a radio telescope and get radio waves from a black hole light years and light years and light years away. Um, And so radio astronomy was actually where I focused and I worked at, I did internships at um, telescopes in Puerto Rico and and, uh, West Virginia and um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts and uh, kind of a a variety of those things. But what what always really, really got to me was that there there was this invisible energy that you could use human technology to capture and, and quantify and a whole hidden universe. Now I write about that universe instead of studying it, but I still think it's cool. 
What types of technology are currently being used to prove the existence of alien life? Um, and then furthermore, any technology that was used previously that has been um, rethought and adapted to, to be used currently? The oldest method of searching for extraterrestrial life is actually one we still use, which is looking for radio broadcasts from uh, aliens using the kinds of telescopes I was just talking about. So you point a telescope somewhere you think they might live, um, and you look for something that doesn't look natural. So kind of traditionally, that's been something like our radio stations that just comes out like a very specific frequency Um maybe contains information that looks like it was purposeful instead of just static from a star. And so since the 1960s, we've kind of thought, hey, we have, we're good at radios. Maybe the aliens also like radios and they built some broadcasters. And um, that hasn't fallen by the wayside, but I think that people have realized that maybe aliens don't like radios um, and you can't count on that. And so uh the field is kind of in the process of diversifying. They're looking for lasers because maybe aliens like lasers shining in space. Um, and then also for more exotic things, like can you point a telescope at a solar system far away and see that all of the planets um, have the characteristics of a tropical paradise, which means that maybe the aliens kind of engineered them that way. Or um, do you see something that looks like uh, a large spaceship or structure blocking the light from a star very far away. So just kinds of more creative ideas. Um, but that's all for aliens far away. And if you wanted to, you know, have they come here in flying saucers, um, there hasn't been so much um, scientific search into that besides, you know, you and I going outside and saying, do we see something or not? But uh, recently, there are some initiatives like one called Skyhub, which um, actually gives you the technology to kind of scan the skies for strange things that appear and disappear and see if they're there. So that's kind of nascent, but emerging. What is the furthest out into space that we can see? And what are we able to see out there? We can see um, we can see the remnants of the Big Bang, kind of the leftover radiation from the beginning of the universe. That is, um, it kind of permeates everything, but it's very old. It's called the cosmic microwave background, and it kind of tells us about the state of the universe right after the universe was born, which is very cool. We can also look back to the very first stars and galaxies that were ever forming. So after after the Big Bang happens. Um, and things started to explode is kind of the wrong word, but explode and spread out. And then all the matter started to come together um, atom by atom and molecule by molecule and form stars and stars formed galaxies. We can see those things um, with the most powerful telescopes we have. So pretty much the beginning. What is the most powerful telescope that we have right now? Hmm. That is a hard question to answer because there's a lot of different kinds. Um, I think the most iconic, very powerful telescope is still the Hubble Space Telescope out there that I'm sure everybody has seen pictures from. Um, and one of one of the cool things it does actually is specifically look very deep and far into the very past universe. They um, create these pictures called the, the ultra deep field, where they just point the telescope at a tiny spot in space and kind of leave the shutter open for a very long time and just see how far back they can see. So we touched on government 
and what they know, what they don't know, what they may be hiding. We know of Area 51. Can you touch on that a little bit and what they do there and what they're studying, potentially what they're, again, hiding (laughs) from us (laughs) and other organizations that are, you know, doing this um, as like a not-for-profit, but they just really want to further the education about what's out there. Area 51 has a big place in UFO lore, I would say, um, because it's mostly, you know, it's conspiracy theory that there's an alien spaceship or alien bodies hiding out underground there. But what we do know about what they do is that um, sort of kind of in the mid 20th century, and it was a place in the Nevada desert where the CIA and later the military could test very secret spy planes and no one would see them um, because it's a hard place to live. And so people mostly don't live there. And so you can fly your planes and no one will know about it, um, especially the Soviets. <laughs> and um, so they just did a lot of aircraft development out there. Um, and, you know, it was a secret um, technically until 2013, I believe is when it was declassified. So even though all of us probably heard about it before that, it was technically a secret until not very long ago. And we don't actually know what they do there now. Um, The idea that there are aliens there comes mostly from one guy named Bob Lazar, who said that he used to work there and that he was part of reverse engineering an alien spaceship. Um, And, you know, we don't have any evidence that that is the case or any evidence that he worked there. But um, like you were saying about hiding things, um, I can't get in there. You can't get in there. They're not going to talk about it. There's not a way for us to prove that that's not what they're doing out there, which is why it can kind of um, live on. Um, And uh, as far as other people researching alien life, the SETI Institute out in California kind of does, they've been the preeminent organization of searching for life far away for a very long time. There's an, a newer organization called the the Breakthrough Initiative that does kind of the same thing as the SETI Institute, searching for transmissions from far away. Um, and then to go back to the UFO side, there's also a new organization called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science that's been involved in bringing a lot of the current information from the the military and the government to the public and um you know, they haven't produced a lot of information for us so far, but they put out some uh, books and music and, and T-shirts and, you know, maybe someday they'll show us the saucers, but not yet. <laughs> hey, everybody. Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Is there any evidence of microbial life in outer space that we've managed to identify or find? So astrobiologists um, who study the hypothetical biology of outer space have put a lot of effort into figuring out what um, chemicals and compounds in the atmospheres of other planets might indicate that there's life there going about its business. And it's a really hard thing to do because what looks like life could also be some kind of strange geological process that we don't understand. Or it's really hard to differentiate like what's what's a little tiny being versus what's a rock acting weird. Um, 
But uh, in mid-September, some uh, scientists um, from England and MIT made an announcement that they had found what they believed to be evidence of microbial life in the atmosphere of Venus, um, which we can't say there's aliens on Venus yet, but it's a very exciting result. They saw this molecule called phosphine, um, which is three hydrogens and one phosphorus on top that they think can only be produced by life. That's the only way that they found that it could be produced there. That's a huge discovery. Um, and Venus is a mostly very unpleasant place. You know, it the surface melts lead and crushes the spacecraft that we send there. But up in the clouds, it's actually like 80 degrees and kind of earthly pressure. And so for a long time, scientists have wondered, is there stuff that could live out there? And as of um, mid-September, the answer seems to be maybe. Hmm. Which is kind Very of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of um, I don't know floating cities. I guess. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean that would be the only way that would uh, happen, right? On Venus, potentially. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, actually, I was reading a little while ago a paper that Carl Sagan, the the famous astronomer, wrote. Um, in the 1970s about imagining what life on Venus would look like. And he imagined aliens that he said looked like float bladders, just kind of like floating around the atmosphere, not building cities, but staying alive up there. So people have been thinking about it for a long time and it will be very intriguing to see if this holds up. Well, and it might also expand how we define life right? Because uh, the, the things that we use, I know there's even a debate about whether viruses are living or non-living things. And, you know, as we explore other worlds, we may discover that there are other things that could be considered life in those conditions. So it's all pretty fascinating. Definitely. And Venus is a place that we wouldn't always have thought of because it doesn't have oxygen um, and we need oxygen. And Kind of the path of all searches for extraterrestrial life is first looking for things that are like us, you know, looking for radio waves because we make radio waves or looking for ocean type planets with oxygen because that's what what we like. But there's really no reason that we're special and they need to be like us. Um, They're probably cooler than us if they're out there. (laughs) (laughs) You've uh, researched and interviewed a lot of interesting people who claim to have had potential encounters. So what's your most compelling stories uh, from your findings and learnings and your journalism work? I did have an experience at Area 51, actually, that I don't think was aliens, but I'll share and then then share somebody else's. but I went out there camping when I was working on uh, the UFO book and uh, I saw, and the two people with me saw this kind of net or matrix of tiny white lights take over like a whole half of the sky, just in very, very neat rows. Um, And they just kind of appeared out of nowhere and the whole sky moved all together um, and then disappeared. Um, And I have no idea what that was. I assume it was a secret Air Force project, um, probably drones, but it's unidentified to me and was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Um, but uh, one of the cases that I that I came across that I found most compelling that I think uh, a lot of got a lot of people into UFOs in the first place actually comes from uh, Iran in the 1970s when. Um, there were a bunch of people uh, outside of 
Tehran, and uh, they saw strange things in the sky, and they called the local military base and said, um, hey, we see these strange lights. What's up with them? And the official there said, oh, nothing. Like, don't pay attention to that. But then he sent out jets to go try to find it. And when the jets went out to try to chase these lights in the sky, all their instruments went off. Um, and uh, they saw a large craft, little craft coming out of them. Um, and then uh, the thing landed, they said, and there was no evidence the next day that that any of it had ever happened. But all of these people, all of these pilots and people in the military had seen it. And um, people have various things that they think that might have been that's that's not aliens. But what I found actually most compelling about it was that it appeared later in an American uh, Air Force manual saying that like, hey, if you're a if you're an Air Force pilot, chances are you're going to see something weird that you can't explain like these guys in Iran a long time ago. Um, and so um, I don't know. I just find I find the the official parts very interesting. That is super interesting. 80s kid here grew up on like unsolved mysteries and things like that, which Netflix has brought back, by the way, and it's actually really, really good. And they have one on extraterrestrial life and abductions and all that. And it's interesting when you hear stories, especially this one episode I'm thinking of, where it's a small town, it was all on one night, and there were several different cases of, hey, what the hell happened? And people who actually didn't know each other that came together after the fact that all have the same encounter experience. So that's wild. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think all of this too, you know, the fact that we're scanning the sky so closely all across the world, um, probably if nothing else is giving us better intelligence and more watchful eyes into what other countries <laughs> may be doing in terms of like, to your point, Sarah, about like flying spy drones or things over our airspace. So there's, there's always that as well. But I want to ask you, because you've studied so much of outer space, do you have a favorite planet and why? Oh, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. I mean, my number one favorite planet is Earth because I like it here and I would die on all the other ones. Um, <laughs> that's a great reason. Yeah, there's no place like home. <laughs> but I think my second favorite, if I had to choose on the spot, would probably be Pluto. Um, because, you know, most of the smaller planets are uh closer to, closer to the sun um and then there's the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn um and then all the way out very far out just kind of in a wonky orbit um looking like it doesn't belong is this uh, I guess it's not technically a planet anymore it's a dwarf planet but I'm gonna still count it anyway um is just this Pluto um and uh, I respect that lone wolf attitude <laughs> the underdog <laughs> that's right <laughs> we've done a lot of research do you think we're ever gonna find that there is something or someone else out there besides us on this little floating blue planet mm -hmm. you know for most of my life I would have said yeah absolutely definitely the universe is so big there are so many planets out there. How could there not be? It would be very strange and arrogant and also scary to think that we were the only things in the whole universe. But I think that actually at the same time that we're discovering that there's more places for things to live and uh, more ways to be alive, that it, that it actually seems pretty hard and we don't understand how to make something that's alive from not alive stuff, from just chemistry to life. And that it's possible that that's really hard um, and the chances 
that it happens are us, us and however many planets there are. So I uh, remain fully agnostic. Mm. <laughs> I, think. I hope so. Um, She's on the I fence, so. people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I think it would be great if this if if this life on Venus thing pans out and holds up as people keep investigating it. Because if life arose two times in our solar system, that basically means it's all over the place. Because two out of our solar system is a lot, and so there's a lot everywhere else. And so that would be that would be good enough for me. It's interesting, even with our Mars exploration, because that seems like we will more than likely get there before we get to potentially Venus, right now mm-hmm. at least. Um, it's almost uh, hypothesized that there could have been life on Mars, mm-hmm. and potentially Mars could have been a place like Earth before, let's say, uh, a quote-unquote global warming situation took over. Mm-hmm. So if there was time travel and we could get to Mars way back in the day, would we find, you know, life or, I don't know, who knows what we'd find? Yeah, maybe that's my next book is researching time travel technology so that I can figure out how to get us there. Yeah, but when you write that book, we'd love to have you back for sure. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, though, we have this really cool thing we call the lightning round. Do you think that you're up for that? I think I can handle it, but I guess we'll all find out together. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I like your spirit. Can-do attitude. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would like to be a spy. How do you define success? I define success as what I really, really value in my own job is the ability to follow my own curiosity to wonder about something and then get paid to figure it out and to be able to spend my days that way I feel really lucky Um, and so I think as long as I can always find things to be curious about and then go seek them out seek out the answers then that that feels good enough to me what resources do you wish existed for women in tech or women who are looking to get into tech I think it would be great to have more mentoring networks for people who might find themselves outside of the traditional ways that they um, get mentors, like already having connections or being part of being part of a network already. We all know that having an example of what you can do goes a long way. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? I come from Florida, and so I have eaten alligator on a not insignificant number of occasions. and the first time I ate it, my parents told me it was chicken. And then I found out it was alligator when I was eating it. And I was deeply unhappy. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie, Sarah? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to throw back to Contact here, my favorite movie. And it made me just very uh, uh, in awe of Jodie Foster. And so, um, you know, she's much cooler than me and older, but um, I think I would pick her if I could pick anyone. She's an OG, so you're, you're Mm -hmm. allowed to choose her. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's something about you that people would be surprised to know? I sometimes participate in uh, these things called adventure races, where you just get a, uh, a latitude and longitude out in the wilderness or a set of them. And then you have like 12 hours to go find as many as you can. And so for fun, I just spend some time running around off of trails looking for random points in the wilderness. And not many women do those alone. And so I have won first place before just by being the only one who did it by herself. That's a cool hobby. Okay. A funny mistake that you made when you were starting out and the story behind it. 
that's a good question. This was maybe my first foray into writing about kind of uh, fringed kind of conspiracy culture. And I wrote about these people who don't believe in gravity. They believe that everything is ruled by electromagnetic waves like light and radio waves and UV rays. And they think that explains everything in the universe. Um, and I thought that maybe I would write a story that was a little funny about this subculture, which seems crazy, right? Because we all know gravity is a thing. Um, but, you know, I interviewed people who were part of it and uh, was more concerned with making my story a funny story than I was necessarily with um, being a little nicer to the people who truly believe this thing. And so after it came out, they were not happy. And it actually really informed the way that I wrote this UFO book um, because I knew if I was going to be taking people's stories that were very meaningful to them, I should treat them better, even if I uh, didn't believe what they what they believed. Hmm. Good life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. If you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global, what would it be? What if we could all set up some kind of alien search thing in our backyard? Um, a movement for <laughs> citizen science searching for aliens. Fun. I'd sign up. Uh -huh. I would too. <laughs> what myth about women in your field or in STEM would you like to dispel? I think in, in my field, uh, science, science writing, um, there is a little bit of a myth that the, the women might be kind of cutthroat and competitive with each other because it is a hard, it is a hard and competitive field to be in. But actually I've found that um, everybody kind of shares ideas and shares people they're interviewing and kind of collaborates so that everybody can write their own best story. And I actually don't find it to be um, a competitive environment in that way at all. So I guess, you know, if somebody's just starting out and they just see, you know, science journalism as a, as a cutthroat thing that actually is a very supportive place to be. How have you surprised yourself in this uh, career slash life journey up to this point? When I was growing up, I was a super, super shy kid. I was very quiet, at least in, in the outside world and um, didn't want to do things like be the one to call it order pizza or anything like that. It was just very scary to me. And now my whole profession is about calling people on the phone, talking to people I don't know, um, sometimes asking them a lot of uncomfortable questions. I worked on it before I, before I became a journalist, but I think that having to do it as a job just kind of lets you put on a different part of yourself than, than might be natural. And then it comes more naturally. So if I, um, if, I mean, my mom knows what I do for a living, but if I'd gone back in time and told her like your daughter will be calling people all day long on the phone and meeting strangers and diners, she'd be like, not my daughter, but, um, here we are. I love that your career brought out a part of you and a strength that you had inside that you would never have thought to nurture otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. All righty. We're on our last lightning round question. Fill in the blank, blank, like a girl. Right. Like a girl. I like that. That's what I do. And I think it's not bad. <laughs> I think it's great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a really interesting conversation and challenging, hopefully, for people and what they naturally think. And um, we'd love to have you back with your with your next book, especially if it's about time travel. I will come back from the future to talk about my book. About time <laughs> there <you> travel. Go. <laughs> Isn't there a movie? <laughs> right. Speaking of books, where can people find your books online? Uh, if they go to my website, sarahskulls.com, it has all the different places you can get it. It's on Amazon and there's a website called IndieBound, I-N-D-I-E Bound, where it will show you what local bookstores 
uh, near you might carry it. Awesome. Sarah, you've been so interesting. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, we will all be scanning the skies and thinking about the, the things that you taught us today yes, <laughs> <That's ma'am. laughs> for that extraterrestrial. Yeah. Let me know if you find them. We'll phone home. Thank you both. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.